Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. I love biking. I've talked about it before, but there's something spiritual, something that takes you to another place in your mind when you're out biking. When you do a 70, 80 mile bike trek, uh, once you get into that, maybe 30, 40 miles, just everything that's buzzing through your mind about your day and your week and all of that kind of goes. And you just focus on the cadence of your pedaling and what you hear um, as far as wind going through the corn stalks and things like that. And, and it's just, it's awesome. It's this nirvana, wonderful feeling. And totally not what I experienced Saturday when I took my bike out for the first time <laughs> this year. So... Here we go. Plotted out a brand new path um, intended to be on about a 70-mile bike trek. And I had new rims built for my bike. Everything was set. Beef jerky, Swedish fish, crackers, um, nuts. Checked the tire pressure. Just checked everything over. Made sure it was ready to go. Out on the trail. So I'm out a little bit. Start to hear this clunk, clunk, clunk in my back hub area of the bike, okay? So you have the gears in the back, um, and then in all the spokes connect to the hub. And I'm thinking, well, maybe this isn't serious. <laughs> so I haven't been out for quite a while because it's Wisconsin, and of course, three weeks ago, we had a lot of snow on the ground. Um, so I'm biking, and I'm thinking, well, maybe it's my cadence. And the cadence is that you are pushing down evenly. So left, right, left, right, left, right. Um, and if, you, if you're kind of jittery in your cadence, it's like coasting when you're a kid on a bike and then all of a sudden you, you start pedaling again and the gears engage. That's what it kind of sounds like. But I was getting that sound like all the time and it was becoming more frequent. So I stopped checking the bike over because I'm like, well, maybe I, maybe I broke a spoke, which would be pretty, pretty bad considering these are industrial strong spokes. Um, I'm very, I create a lot of torque when I pedal. So I was busting out the spokes. Um, so this was supposed to take care of that. So there's a way to do that. You can spin the wheel and if it starts to wobble side to side and goes against the brakes, brake pads, stuff like that. Well, obviously too, like if there's a broken spoke, right? So, but no, everything was fine, but I did notice that the wheel would move a little bit. I could actually physically move it left to right. So I took it off, reset it was still doing this, something, oh, something's up in the hub. So I continue to bike, just thinking maybe something has to settle in. <laughs> of course, that never happens, but um, I get about 10 miles out, and it's a, it's a wonderful day. My body 
is starting to convert sunlight to vitamin D. My skin is like, thank you, adding some tan back after being, you know, just long sleeve, multiple layer shirts and fleeces all through the winter and whatever we have as a spring. So it was awesome. It was completely awesome. And I had to turn around. <laughs> so I'm making it back and I'm hearing this bong, 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 bong which is coming from the back um, hub. And even as I stop pedaling, the noise continues. So the noise is going, the noise is going, the noise is going. Um, whether I start to pedal, it goes down a little bit, still happening. Get the bike back, um, check it out. And so the day is kind of ruined, you know, because I'm like, I was just set on this ride and it didn't happen. Um, pull up the bike rack or bike carrier which inserts into the receiver hitch that I have on my car. And I've, got, I've gotten pretty good at this. I'm like the, like the dad in A Christmas Story when he's like, time me on how fast I can change the flat tire. Um, so I can get it down to about five minutes where I can maneuver this thing upstairs. It's pretty heavy, pretty clunky. Get it in the receiver hitch and then uh, put the bolt through and, and tighten that all up and I'm set to go. Take the bike, put it on, secure it down. And the next day I took it out to the bike shop, which is open seven days a week. Um, that These guys just work on these things. Um, they don't do anything else. You know, they're not selling like skis and stuff like that. So immediately they they built this. So um, they identified what went wrong with it, something inside the hub. So they had to replace some things. And wasn't unusual that this happens on the higher end hub design that I have. Uh, but everything was like great after they got done it. And then he said, take it out, take it out for like 20 minutes and just like ride it, <laughs> ride it like you're on the roughest, meanest trail and a thunderstorm is bearing down on you. So I did, like I took it and I'm just riding this thing like crazy. And there's actually like this tennis court um, that doesn't have the, the tennis nets on it. So I take it out in this tennis court and I'm doing like these figure eights where I've got the thing like almost parallel to the ground. <laughs> really like putting stress on the bike and it's perfect. Like I'm not hearing even uh, any type of noise whatsoever, not even a creak in the frame. So I take it back and I'm like, yes, like everything is fine. And they're like, great, great. So, but the thing is I haven't been able to get the bike out since we haven't had weather conducive for a bike trek. I mean, it's been rainy. It's been cold. I think our high on Friday was 44 degrees. Okay, we're talking early May in southern Wisconsin. It should be 70, 75 every day now. Like that is just, that's a standard, okay? We had the second coldest April on record. And it's it's kind of carrying over into into May. So, um, and if not, of course, it's rain. So <laughs> you can't come out during rain. Or I guess you could. I'm not going to do it. Um so yeah, that kind of sucked because I had this whole thing planned and it's, it's, ah, so I'm looking out days ahead of the next bike, possible bike trek. And it looks like a week from Saturday is going to be really good. Like the weekend. So I think either that Saturday or Sunday, I'm going to get up early, just be gone. Like the whole day, just biking, just awesome. So, um, we completed our reservations for our South Dakota trip. And everything went according to plan. So one is, like, I got the hotels that I wanted. And when I was growing up, like, we didn't stay in hotels. Uh, we stayed in motels 
uh, kind of like in the movie National Lampoon's uh, Vacation <laughs> out to Wally World. Uh, that's, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't do a lot of vacations, but the vacations we did, we went to places. It was like the, the you know, vacancy sign on, on a motel. I would never stay at like today. <laughs> And the selling point, if it had a pool, and it was an outdoor pool, obviously, none of these had indoor pools, and it would be like ice cold and, and you know, there'd be leaves all over and stuff like that. But I mean, I don't know. It was kind of, it was still kind of exciting and a treat as a kid, but I, I don't want to go anywhere and not have, of course, like a place to stay. Like I want a destination already, like my room waiting for me. Um, and now that I have a family, of course, it's more important than it was years ago. So, um, so we got, got our reservations. We're all set. The only thing that didn't work out is in Phillips, South Dakota, they have a nuclear silo, um, that you can tour Delta one. You can check this out on the website. So I went to register for this and it was the strangest thing because it looked like there were vacancies. So I think they take 18 people a day. 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and then 2.45. And um, every group has up to six people. And it looked like there were four openings for this one time slot. I want it. Two adults, two kids. So I put it in my cart. I checked out. And then I got this notice that, congratulations, like, here's your verification. And it was just the kids. The adults weren't there. So I'm like, well, this is weird. I went back and there wasn't, it said there wasn't anything available. So I called up the place the next day. And uh, I said, hey, like, this is what happened last night. I went in and I tried to register all four of us for this trip and, and this tour. It didn't happen. Um, I'm, I just got notification. So can you add us, my wife and I, to this? And they're like, well, we can't because <laughs> everything's filled. And um, I'm like, well, so explain this process to me. Because when I went there, it had like this four, you know, people could take this trip and whatever. They're like, no, that's actually not how it works. Like how it works is it just shows like how many, that two was the maximum. So it could be like two kids, two adults, one kid, one. I'm like, it didn't, I'm like, your site didn't say anything about that. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like for a nuclear I, a facility and all of this stuff, I know you're decommissioned, but like this site was hell to navigate <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't get the reservations. So, um, Plus, I was getting a little bit of attitude. Uh, wasn't appreciative of that. So, and then they're like, "Well, you can still come out and like tour." What I'm like, forget it. Like, no, I'm not. I replace. You've been replaced um, with the 1880s town. So, eight plus for the 1880s town, minus for the uh, nuclear silo in uh, Phillips, South Dakota. Um, so just a little little talk because I, I just didn't think the website was very user friendly. It was kind of confusing. Um, and had it been more clear, I think I could have gotten the reservations that I wanted or at least been more informed of like you need to make these way ahead of time. I know you can't go like the day of and whatever, but so I think I think it would have been an awesome thing to see. So I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the process to book this. It's like that Seinfeld episode where then Jerry goes and they they, he, they don't have the car for him, but he has the reservation. <laughs> and... So he's like, you, you know how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation. So <laughs> anyway, it's going to be an awesome trip. Um, I was out there like 20 years ago. So it'd be interesting to see what's changed and what hasn't. Uh, speed limit is 80. So, you know, 
it, you have to calculate that in when you do the distance things because it's like things will be shorter <laughs> because you're it's not very busy you know it's it's not like when we went to to Orlando to Disney and you're driving through Nashville at rush hour or Birmingham and these big areas I mean um, you know you're going through Mitchell South Dakota fifteen thousand people and then you know eventually Rapid City at seventy five thousand so. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Safety Dog Podcast with me, David Proden, your host. You are awesome listeners. The shows are doing great. Please share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Magic Gram, Super Gram, Teddy Gram, and uh, whatever grams you have. But please share the show. Get it out to people. Um, we have been doing really well, really well on downloads and listens on feedback, so I appreciate that. This show airs on The 405 Media, the405media.com, out of Los Angeles, California, Monday through Saturday, 2 p.m. PST, The 405 Media. You can find the safety doc. You can go and you can listen to, to previous shows. My blog posts are there. Check out safetyphd.com, safetyphd.com, all of my blog posts. Again, the ways that you can access my shows um, it's all there, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and of course, you know, it's pretty much everywhere, the, the Stitcher, Blueberry, so you can find it. Um, thank you so much, and also thank you to Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, Sprigio.com, out of Santa Barbara, Sprigio.com, the nation's leader in online school safety reporting, Sprigio.com. And a few shout-outs to uh, a couple of podcasters, Aaron Clary and the Clary Podcast. You can find him at captaincapitalism.blogspot.com. Uh, certainly enjoying his show. And Larry Roberts, Larry Roberts at readilyrandom.com. Larry Roberts. I did a review of his book, talked about that on the last show. Uh, Larry Roberts. Still can't believe he wrote that thing in 28 days. <laughs> I have a book contract, which has kind of been sitting idle for a while. And um, I, I need to go back to that. I need to revisit that because after listening to Larry and and talking with Aaron also, Aaron has published several books. Um, I need to get back to that. Part of it is like I'm working through a publisher and, and they publish independently. So there's a lot more rules, I guess, I got to play by chew in, in specific formatting and, and audience and things like that and, and stuff like, you know, advances and whatever. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a new podcast out there. Um, Caitlin Doty. Well, it's not new. It's, it's not new. It's new to me. Okay. It's new to me because I found it. I don't know. It, it was, you know, how they come up on the side of, you should check this out. But, um, 
It's called Ask a Mortician, and she's in her early 30s, and she started this podcast when she was in her late 20s, but Caitlin Doty, um, again, Ask a Mortician on YouTube, and they're typically like six to 10 minutes long, and she really has a great sense of, of humor, uh, but they're very informative, and I, I just like them. I mean, it's questions of like, you know, what really, it, it's like, you know, what is embalming, um, some history about certain things and whatever, and because, you know, ultimately I've talked about like when I do pass on, you know, it's going to be a pretty simple process. Um, there isn't going to be any real pomp and circumstance and, and money, you know, what I would say, waste it on these big memorials and things like that. You know, I stop at a cemetery on this one bike route that I often do. That's about halfway through. So I have to drive down or bike down this bumpy road that's not maintained anymore and then walk through a field and get to this country cemetery. And uh, the church is gone, so this thing's abandoned. Nobody cares for it. And half the gravestones are, you know, either they've fallen over, there's been some vandalism. They're they're all very weathered, but, like, nobody, the families don't come anymore, but nobody knows who these people are. I mean, you just get lost to time. And, you know, this, there's also this whole issue of um, embalming. I didn't know this, but um, where embalming fluid. So, like, right around the Civil War era, embalming kind of start it apparently, you know, in the U.S. I could be totally wrong on all of these details, but it involved a lot of arsenic, and then that eventually got converted to formaldehyde is what is used today. Uh, but these these are, you know, very toxic and very bad for groundwater. <laughs> and, and now they're leaching into groundwater because these graves have collapsed or they've leaked and things like that. And um, so, yeah, that's another reason I don't want to I, – I, just don't, I don't want to do stuff like that. I don't see the value in that. And then, you know, I, I go back to, I remember when my grandfather, um, we were at, we were up for the service, uh, at the, at the cemetery and they, um, they dropped, they not, they didn't drop, but they lowered the casket into a vault. And I, I'd never seen like a vault before. I've of course seen a casket before, but, um, so the vault's already in the ground and it's huge, you know, this massive vault, which contains then the casket. And they're doing this all by machine as we stand there, you know, they're lowering down and, and I'm thinking, this is just really weird. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know. I was early college at that time and I just thought this is just really weird. Um, nothing against, you know, the family and all of that, but I was like, this is not what I want. And then of course they bring the lid on and then, you know, the, the whole stuff, but I'm like, it just, it just really seemed very unnatural. <laughs> and that's where Caitlin, um, she talks about that. She has a YouTube. You can find that Ask a Mortician on YouTube. She has a podcast too. I haven't really checked that out too much because I think I've kind of got my fill and I've kind of got the information that I, that I was looking for um, through her, her um, stuff on YouTube. But she, she does have a really great sense of humor. So... I'm outside today and I am I'm mowing my lawn and I look down and um, across from me in one house down is one of my neighbors. So he's, you know, he's maybe 60 and he and his wife are out trying to somehow unload a riding lawnmower, um, which was smaller, but not like a small riding lawnmower. This thing had, was, had a little size to it, you know, and... Um, He's trying to, to somehow lower this out of the back of his truck. So I'm watching him 
And I'm like, ooh, like this is this isn't gonna go well. <laughs> so um, I go down and I'm like, do you need some help on this? And he's like, sure, that'd be great. That would be great. Thank you. And you know, so he's he's kind of like giving me the well, I can do this and that. I'm like, well, here's the deal. Like, you know, realistically, I am, you know, I'm linebacker size, <laughs> and. I can I can handle this thing because it's like a deadlift because you, I'm bringing it down and when you when you're doing that th- you have more strength in like a deadlift of like lowering in it something like w- from your waist down or, or raising like from the ground up so that's you you have strength so I know like it's not going to be that hard for me to to handle this thing because part of the weight's still going to be on the front of the the tailgate as I lower the back down and then eventually. Um, I can re-maneuver it where I can get the front down. I don't know exactly how I did it. It, it made total sense as I looked at it of like, here's how to do it. So yeah, I, I totally, I just took this thing and basically lifted it off. Um, it was pretty heavy, but it wasn't like anything where I'm like, ah. Um, and then I set it down and then uh, he was really thankful for that. So <laughs> I saw him out there though. I don't think it started like right away for him. He was working on it and then finally... I saw him like doing little laps around his yard, so he's all happy about that. But um, my my daughter's furniture from Levi, the Amish uh, man making our our daughter's furniture, got it done. Um, except he didn't get the mirror done. Um, so the mirror's coming out in three weeks, and but everything else is done. So the one chest that so Levi has this brought out. Um, there's like a, so it's like a big, well, it's like a truck, not like a truck. What am I talking about? It's a truck. <laughs> it, it's like a moving truck. Okay. Again, not like it's basically, you know, so, um, he, he, somebody drives this thing out who I didn't meet. This is somebody he works or does this for him. Uh, they come out and then he loads it up and then he unloads it. He's older than I am. And, uh, basically it's Levi and me. There's nobody else, and the the one chest of drawers had to easily weigh over 200 pounds. Easily. I mean, because this thing is like super, super, everything he makes is solid. Like the bed frame was amazing. I mean, this thing is amazing. Plus, like, he these huge, like, bolts, almost like leg bolts to put this thing together. Um, this was, I, I this was incredible, but super heavy. So it's just Levi and myself. Um putting this stuff in so i'm like i'm glad i work out (laughs) because that was heavy stuff and my daughter definitely has the best furniture in the house like out of bedroom sets i mean levi made our kitchen table and some other stuff for us really good but um she definitely has the best bedroom set that will that is not college furniture (laughs) it's probably not apartment furniture i mean if she wanted to take it um after she settles down um, years from now, that's fine. Uh, but otherwise it's really designed to kind of stay in the house, but yeah, thank you, Levi. I couldn't believe it. So she's got everything all kind of put together and she's really excited about it. Really nice, really nice. And her sister inherited the bunk bed. So she's been having a blast with that. Um, so kind of fun as, as you see that with your kids. And then we also have the, uh, the bedroom set with, that originally was the crib and then converted to a bed and then con- 
converts again and stuff like that. And that is going to one of our relatives who is having a baby. So it's in the front room to be picked up. And that'll be also great to have that picked up and out because that front room hasn't really been accessible for quite a while um, since we've started moving the furniture around. So yay for all of that. So um, I wanted to talk today about seven reasons to stop making and taking surveys. I'm not a fan at all of surveys, and um, I want to tell you why. So first of all, um, how many, I mean, how many times do you get surveyed? I mean, quite a bit, like customer satisfaction, your, your time with the doctor, or you get done on, you know, some order that you're doing online or whatever. How was our customer service or how was our chat feedback? I'm like, I just, <laughs> all right. All right. Um, but let me, let me talk about surveys. So I am not an advocate of surveys and here's a quote. Sometimes the questions are complicated and the answers are simple. That was Dr. Seuss. <laughs> In the context of a survey, a construct. So I want to I want to tell you basically what a what a survey is. So you're you're like yeah, Dave. I know what a survey is. Like a, you know, I fill out whether you like this or that and and things like that. Yes, but behind the scenes, there are things called constructs or abstract ideas or underlying themes that you're trying to find out from your survey. And most people will th- that I found will throw surveys together. Like hey, I put this survey together or a survey at work and whatever, and here's what I found out. I'm like, well, what were your constructs for the survey? Constructs? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Safety doc man? Constructs? Yeah, because if you don't have constructs, then your survey is pretty useless uh, at that level, like without constructs. Um, hiccups. Hiccups. Even if you have constructs, it still has marginal use, and we'll, we'll get into that. If not, becomes useless. So... Um, Here's what surveys measure. So here's your constructs. So you could measure, you could have a survey of measuring height and weight. You know, you, you could do that. Take X number of people, um, height and weight. Those could be, be constructs. You could have indirect. This is where people really get into surveys. Um, happiness, frustration, satisfaction. So hard things to measure because you don't have inter-rater reliability. What happiness means to one person um, is not the same as, as what it means to another person, okay? Where height is objective. Like, we, we know we can, you know, the ruler doesn't change from one person to another. Um, but, yeah, happiness in asking somebody about, you know, questions about job satisfaction or, or stuff like that. So we get into these things about constructs. And you really need to put time into thinking about what you're trying to measure. So let's say, let's just say it's 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 workplace. So you're doing um, a survey, and you're in charge of this. And it's like um, we we want to find out um, what people uh, like. Let's say safety, because hey, I'm the safety doc, so safety. Let's talk about physical environment um, questions that have to do with like, do you do we do you understand the drills? Um, do you think the drills are, are done with, uh, ample frequency? Um, do you, okay. So those are, those are things like you could have a Likert, you could either have yes, no, but I would say like, um, are the, how confident are you that you would know what to do during an emergency situation? 
and then like a one through six or something like that. You don't want to do those odd because then if someone picks the middle just as a safe ground, that doesn't really tell you anything. Like you want people to, to tilt their hand of either like, you know, if it's six and you're, you're showing as a three, then you're not quite as sure Four, you're more sure. So anyway, um, so, and it can be things like, um, so it could be that, it could be that you've received um, appropriate training that you know how to um identify instances when your environment isn't, you know, safe. So I'm thinking about schools and, and things like that. So, um, so anyway, we get into these, we get into surveys. Surveys are used uh, a lot and, um, they, they often have terms that are very hard to parse out and understand like surveys about bullying. Have you been bullied in the last 12 months? Well, what, what exactly is bullying? What exactly is bullying? Um, how is that different than harassment? How is it different than teasing? In this this whole twelve months, like I can't remember exactly what I was doing last this day one year ago. So, but let's get into our seven reasons why I want you to stop making and taking surveys. Number one. Okay, let's say that this is this is a finding from a survey. And this is very typical for surveys, um, especially in school settings. But let's let's say that that somebody compiles a survey, people take it, and this is this is what they find from aggregate data. So meaning, like if they have three hundred high school students take this, they they come up with this, boil it down to this: fifteen percent of youth surveyed indicated that they had suicidal thoughts at least twice during the past year. Okay, I've seen people say that is great. Like that is that is great data to have. Like this data really helps us. How how the hell does that data really help you? It fifteen percent of youth surveyed indicated that they had suicidal thoughts at least twice during the past year. Okay, let's let's break this down. So fifteen percent of youth surveyed. I want to know the names of the youth. If you just know that 15% of youth have had suicidal thoughts, that's not helping you. Now you have to do this blanket approach of like addressing everybody and hope that you get to the 15% who have had the suicidal thoughts. So you need to know who is having these suicidal thoughts, not that there are people within this large population who had suicidal thoughts. You see the difference there? And then, Youth surveyed. So were there youth that were excluded from this? How about students with disabilities? And if so, like why? Um, what did you do for people who weren't there that day? So of youth surveyed. So these these all need little like underneath descriptors so you really know what these terms mean. And did you pick out certain youth that you surveyed? And if so, like why? Um, but anyway... So had suicidal thoughts at least twice during the past year. So at least twice. Okay, well, what is the difference between once and twice and thrice? Okay, I mean, I, I, I don't know what that value brings you. Like, does everybody just have the suicidal thought once? And it's like, well, you know, he had had a suicidal thought once or you smoked one cigarette. So we're not that concerned about it. Well, no, that's ridiculous. And 
during the past year, boy, those questions show up all the time. And in some pretty high-end surveys, like the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. But how do you determine this cutoff point of a year? And I want to get into the uh, earlier podcast I did about um, the forgetting curve. So it's it's a phenomena. It's been proven very um, needs to, to you need to be aware of it in the courtroom because people forget um, things very quickly. And over time, the more you tell things, the more other events happen. Things become com- conflated. We know that there's this thing also called the Mandela effect that people can have a memory of something um, that completely isn't accurate, like that never occurred that way, but many people might have a memory of it that way. That's not as well understood, and I think that has a lot to do with marketing. But any as I get into this, though, what I'm trying to point out is this whole thing of trying to say during the past year, it that that doesn't work. I mean, our minds don't work that way where we can just dial it back 365 clicks and then go forward from there. It doesn't work. So um, I, I think that those are those are just wasted questions. <laughs> so um, and you know, let, let's just let's just say it. Those those are just bad. That's just a bad way to write a question. But most surveys have questions like that. So um, number two. Response rates. So how many surveys do you receive and actually complete? If it's voluntary, like mostly none, because I have better things to do than to complete a survey. Uh, So people also dislike completing surveys. People loathe completing surveys, especially long surveys. We get this thing every year from the Arbor Day Foundation. I don't know what the hell it is because I don't complete it, but it's like it does come with a self-addressed postage paid envelope, you know, but I, I get it, you know, maybe there's some value in that, but I've got other things to do and life is short. I'm not going to complete a, a survey about trees, you know, like I'm pro tree. Okay. That's, that's it. You get nothing else. Um, well, how about an ash versus, you know, like a, a white birch? And do you think that, no, I don't care. I don't. Okay. Like, I'm not putting my time into that. You've got to do a lot of convincing. You can send me stickers of trees, try to guilt me into this. It's not going to help. And I'll put those stickers on, you know, stuff that I send out to people. And they'll be like, why is there a sticker of a tree? What's the message here that Davis, wait, there's a survey. He's going to follow up with a damn survey. Anyway. Um, Also, people, so you do go and find, though, people who like to take surveys, like they got nothing else going on. And so all of a sudden you are getting these people who will complete anything that is sent to them. It's like the person who gets the phone call during the election time and they're like, you know, we're here to talk to you about, you know, whatever, whatever. And we want to know who you're, you know, considering voting for and why. And it's like that person is waiting for that phone call because now they've got someone to talk to so they'll talk for 30 minutes about how, you know, politics and whatever and and the things that they want to see changed and all that. And it's like, that means nothing. So <laughs> the person on the other end just really wants like one or two pieces of information, but they're like just keeping, they're like, yeah, 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 okay, yes, yes, okay, yes, whatever. So, <laughs> but you've just become that person's date for the night. You know, you've, you've become their discussion friend. Um, so you get that too of like people who just, 
they they want to take these surveys because it's almost like you become and you can become a professional survey taker. Um, but response rates can be really low. I think it's like two percent in some cases. Um, and I, I really think that response rates are dropping even more. And and this is where you get the things tagged in, where it's like if you complete this, you'll be entered into a drawing for one of ten, you know, whatever electronic devices or something like that, which still, you know, doesn't do a lot to <laughs> drag me in. In colleges though, that when I took my stats class where we talked about surveys, like that was very much allowed. And you could do that as long as you actually did that. Like, um, so if you were going to give away some tickets to the or, or or some gift certificates to the bookstore randomly for people that participate in your survey, that was okay. You could do that as an incentive. You know, the university was was fine with some of those things. Um, and you know, and and there you had a smaller group, so maybe some people would participate because you know you. It, your chances might be, you know, one out of a thousand or something like that versus like, you know, one out of a hundred thousand. But yeah, you know, so response rates are low on surveys. Three, positionality. This is, nobody talks about this. So we're talking about it right now, right? So <laughs> positionality means um, because like I'm the safety doc, I have a certain way that I'm going to frame questions about safety because I've done so much with safety. And the positionality of the person writing the question, like if you're a human resources director and you're asked by your school board or your company, your business board to do a survey of employees about um, job satisfaction and loyalty and things like this, I guess, which could be constructs, job satisfaction definitely would be you're probably going to write that in a way that is going to lean that favorably for you because if everybody hates working there and you're the HR director, that doesn't look good for you, okay? <laughs> because either you're not doing your job or you're hiring the wrong people for the positions. So this is the thing, though, positionality. Um, people write v surveys, and it can be one person that quickly does, you know, puts a survey together, um, or it can be multiple people. Um, but you have the positionality of that group that's writing that survey. And usually it's just one or two people. Like I've known professional survey writers that have worked for major companies, and it's kind of like they just do it. Um, so you are running into the positionality of that person. And if they have a bias, and all of us do, um, it's going to show up in that survey. And also you have to look behind the scenes of like, what is, what is this really influencing? You know, like a lot of these school surveys, um, things of like, you know, we're, we're proving that, um, you know, um, drug, drug use has, has gone down or, or whatever. Well, you know, well, maybe, I don't know. Or the kids just are responding that they're not doing drugs because why would you want to take the risk on a survey of admitting that you do drugs or something like that? I mean, just stupid. Um, but I'm just saying you have this, this positionality of the way that these questions are going to be written. Um, and unless you have a really, uh, you get input of people ahead of time, um, you get input from the people that you're going to be surveying to so you understand where their level is at um, and what's really concerning to them so you can re reflect some of those things in the survey. It's really a hit and miss. Like you're just putting this out there and hoping 
that out of your 40 questions, like three are going to be applicable. That's what it is. So, but I, I've seen some positionality, uh, some surveys that are written almost like a complete non lose. Like, um, you know, we've greatly improved our evacuation times and buildings or whatever. Um, do you, you know, uh, feel that, you know, this has improved, um, a little, um, this is improved a, a lot, or this is improved like significantly something weird like that. Well, it's like, what if you don't feel it improved <laughs> or you can't reflect that, you know? Um, so anyway, positionality definitely comes through in these surveys. Number four, you are not able to ask clarifying questions. So I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what this term means. And so, you know, I, I'm, what does bullying mean? What do you mean by this? Um, and you can't ask the question, okay? Most of these surveys, you, you, you can't. So you, you're completing it and you're assuming as you're writing this survey that people are gonna understand this, but the reality is you don't know that. Um, and, and most of these things are written, you know, and I'll talk about readability in a, in a little bit, but they're not that accessible. It's not like everybody understands all of these terms and, and how they're put together in the lingo and the context and things like that. So you're not able to ask clarifying questions if you're the one taking the survey. Again, so if I'm doing this Arbor Day survey or something and, and there's some question about um, you know neutralizing my my soil or something like that or or you know how often do you check um, for the pH levels um, and whatever i'd be like well like okay is this checking for ph level when i do this and then like what is really the range like for my area is it different from like state to state or i mean questions like that that could that could be very relevant maybe my ph is supposed to be a 6.8 where i'm at but if you're yeah in tallahassee oh my goodness 6.8 that's awful so i don't know um so takes away asking clarifying questions. Is, again, surveys are one way. I make it, get it out to you. I'm hoping that 2% of, of you will take the time to complete it and get it back to me. Um, but again, we lose clarifying questions. Five, it's not easy to ask good questions. So we talked about formulating those constructs. You know, um, those are hard to do. So what are you really measuring? Like if you're measuring job satisfaction, uh, what are you measuring? You know, do people feel that they have, um, they're recognized for their work, I guess? Do people feel they have a home life balance? That could be a construct. Um, that the environment is, is safe, um, that they have resources um, to meet their needs in the environment, you know, like a, a break room or microwave or something like that, um, that they find opportunities to move up in the company. I don't know. I mean, these are things though that you could talk about. You need to talk about like, are these things that you want to measure? Because maybe you're having a high turnover and you're paying people well. And it's like, why are we having this high turnover even though we're paying people really well? So then, you know, um, that you'd want to involve in a construct like, you know, long, um, longevity with the, with the company. So you're going to formulate some questions then that are going to 
um, support the constructs of longevity. And you're going to spread those questions throughout the survey, not like have a heading longevity, <laughs> which people do also. Um, but it would be um, questions that would have to do with what what would make you um, want to have a career with this company where you would be working here three years from now. And then, you know, various factors, you know, such as it could be compensation. Um, it could be that it's a family-friendly um, in, environment to work, uh, meaning that if you need to take off, flex your schedule for, you know, your kids um, meeting at school or something that you could do that, whatever. Um, if you need it for your own health, you know, your plan, you need to take some time off, get in there and, and take a couple of weeks off and go out hiking out west, meet up with Aaron Clary in Henderson, Nevada. Yeah. So things like that. But people, again, they don't ask good questions. They ask a lot of questions and they hope that somewhere in there, they'll be able to pick some response, which will be that, as we talked about, aggregate of 15% of youth surveyed indicated that they had suicidal thoughts at least twice during the past year, which really sounds like you've done something, right? <laughs> like if you present that to a school board or to people, um, you know, at a staff meeting, like they're like, that's, yeah, like we, we need to do something about that. But what does that really mean? And again, it's not easy to ask good questions. You got to put time into a survey. These people will say, well, I'll just put a survey together and I'm going to have it, I'll have it out in like within an hour. I'm like, a survey takes a lot of time to put together. It takes more than an hour. Um, let's get to number six. Survey question vernacular. Vernacular, register. Uh, basically, if you can think of it too, of like a grade level of the questions that you're asking. How much of this is being understood? And a lot of times it's, it's just too complicated. There's too much jargon or it's in this goofy format where it's bracketed by in the last 12 months and stuff like that. I, I taught a university graduate course this spring and it was for aspiring special education directors. One of the things that they did as part of this course was to take content from student handbooks about bullying and harassment, um, which is very um, regulated under state law, Act 309 in Wisconsin, where I am at. But in many states and even communities, there's, there's legislation, laws um, prohibiting bullying and harassment and actually um, does have consequences that can be legal that, that you know, go with that. Um, but anyway, how much of this is understood? So it gets written in the handbooks. You can take passages and put them into online free readability, and it comes up with different um, scores and, and fry scores and things like that, uh, which basically are different readability levels. And those, those work pretty well. Like you can do that at no cost and take passages. And guess what? Everybody's passages came out way high. So if it was middle school, it was like, this is coming out at a 12th grade level or 12, 12 plus. And it's like, yeah, most of these things are written at a level that are um, beyond the people that are taking the surveys. Okay, most of the time. And think about English uh, people who aren't native English speaking, um, 
you know, also persons with disabilities, youth with disabilities. I've often complained to no regard, but, um, or to no, to no avail, I should say. But, um, you know, we, we put surveys before kids with disabilities and it, they're, they're not able to understand what the surveys are asking. And we also have these threat input systems for schools. I know this because I study this and I work in this area um, and work very diligently to make these systems as accessible as possible so students understand the systems and how to, um, how to input threats into these systems. But it's the same thing with surveys. Like if you're surveying about a safe school environment, like if you even say that, like, do you feel school is safe? What does safe mean? And if you're, you, so you're not able to ask the question, but what does safe mean? Or, you know, I feel like our, our school is adequately fortified. Well, I can tell you right now that is, that question is a 12th grade or 12th plus question. You're asking that to a sixth, seventh grader adequately fortified. What the hell is this? Dungeons and Dragons? Which I used to play when I was a kid, by the way, on my Intellivision. And then uh, if you got close to the corner and you couldn't see around, but you could hear the, the dragon be like, sss, sss, sss. I'm like, okay, I got my, my arrows. And you have to like launch like 10 arrows like before the thing came around the corner. But yeah, these things aren't accessible. So surveys, again, um, let's talk about survey results. Number seven, people tend to generalize these. You, you aggregate these results. So let's say you, you did have like 10 high schools and you combine all of them and then you come up with this data of 15% of youth. So like maybe in a county, like you do this, that doesn't, that doesn't work. Okay. Then you go to the smallest unit of measure, which is that high school and you find out what's happening there because maybe you have like one Metro school that's skewing everything. Um, so you, again, you get to the unit of measure and things don't play well from county to county and state to state, especially on things like terms of uh, what is like battery, what is harassment. I did, I did a show um, back in, oh, it was, I think, December of 2015 with Joe Bruzet and Spragio on some changes, OCR reporting. But literally, I, I compared how states reported things and one state might report um you know, 10 ways of assault and battery. Another state might have 10, 110 different ways that they report that out. So you can't jive all these things together. It doesn't work. So this aggregate data is, is just useless. You don't have inter-reader reliability. You're not using the same terminology and you, you, you don't have the same context. You can't compare that unit of measure of maybe this one school. And I've talked schools a lot or, or workplace to a different workplace in a different setting. It just doesn't work. So, um, so yeah, people tend to generalize. So if you keep a survey very, very narrow and very, very tight to like that unit, that school, that grade level, that staff, you're much better off. So it's like, oh my God, what do we do now? It's pointless. It's hopeless. No, it's not. It's not. Here's a better way. Here's a better way. So let's think about online shopping for a moment. Okay. So you go into Amazon and... You want to buy like a uh, leaf blower. Okay, you want to buy a leaf blower. So what's what's something you're going to do? You're going to look at the reviews. The first thing is probably the stars. So, you know, it's the five-star system. And really, you know, if something 
has 100, 200 reviews and it's under four stars, I'm probably not going there. I'm like, well, I'll look for something that has like higher. But let's say, you know, it has 4.3 or something like that. I'm like, okay, you know, some people, things just don't work for them and they give bad reviews. Um, But generally 4.3, pretty strong. I'm reading these narratives then. I'm going in and I want to read and I want to learn. I'm reading these narratives. Now, these aren't surveys. Amazon's not surveying these people. These reviews are not surveys. These reviews are more qualitative or narrative. And you can go in and kind of do your own coding of of what um, you're looking for in the product and what other people found. And, and the, so those that system really works well. And I think that's one of the strengths of why Amazon is so effective. I think if you took away the review portion of Amazon, um, it would significantly uh, be um, have less appeal for the buyers. The fact that you can have reviews, um, but let's let's talk about what is a better way: small in-person focus groups. These work, folks. These work. I've done them. I've I did two in the last like six weeks. And here's how to set them up. So you have six to eight people. That's it. Six to eight people. And you take about 40 minutes. You do it in one room. So it's a comfortable setting. And you don't have to bring in things like pizza and soda and snacks and anything like that. No. I mean, it's you, you come in, let people know ahead of time, hey, we're asking questions about um, school safety and school climate. And we want to get your input. So I usually work with somebody else because um, maybe someone else comes up with some questions or can build off some things. Um, I typically take a lot of notes and let the other person ask the questions and then I'll be listening very carefully or I'll come back to something of saying, you had said this like earlier, so um, I want to know exactly what, help me to understand what you meant by this. So I clearly have it down. Whether you're doing this with kids or adults, they value this participation and they're going to give you information that you would have never gotten on a survey and it's going to be timely it's going to be relevant it will be relevant not irrelevant it will be relevant so um, what i do is i'm taking notes i also bring in a recorder so i can record this and I, i leave it right out in the open i don't videotape these but i record it and i do that so i can go back and listen and then i can also code code qualitatively code Okay. Meaning what am I hearing a lot? What am I hearing a lot? And that's where in the last podcast I talked about where we interviewed students after we had the fire and students were evacuated. And in that process, one of the things that was coming up over and over with students of, you know, what, what was frustrating about this? Was there anything that was frustrating? And it was, yes, once we were out for 20 minutes, like no one was telling us what was going on, that there was a fire in the building. It was a dryer fire um, and that it had been extinguished, but there were, they needed to check that everything was fine and, and get the smoke out. Like nobody told us that. So we're waiting and waiting and waiting and we're hearing more fire engines come in. So it's like, whoa, like that was great. That was great information. But how would you have captured that on a survey? And then also on a survey, I mean, you really would have had to have like an other section where you're having people put down a narrative. So, um, and they're not going to do that. They're not going to do that. So you immediately can check for understanding too. I can, I can ask, um, uh, questions and, and say, okay, you said, you said this, um, help me to understand what you meant by, 
um, you 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 weren't sure when you came back in where to to go. Were you were you talking like? Did you think there was going to be like a gathering and like a debriefing of what happened, or like you didn't know what hour it was, um, or if you know there was some areas of the of the building that wouldn't be accessible? So so help me to understand. Like I can get that right then. I can get it right then. And again, participants feel involved, and from kids to adults, they they talk, and it's again that six to eight people, and you keep it at that forty minutes. It's divergent, meaning you're not asking for like the one answer. Um, you're letting people talk about their experiences, you know what they felt, and then they can listen to other people and they can build off of that. And you get a lot of unexpected input. A lot of people will say things that you didn't even expect that they were going to come up with and say. Um, and that's good. So, um, but that is that is so valuable to do these small in-person focus groups, whether it be at a workplace. And again, six to eight people. And what we did though, is this was, we did four focus groups. So four separate groups. So all together, you know, maybe between um, 25 and 30 people were, not surveyed, were participants in this focus group. And that's the way that we got the information. So if we would have tried to do this by survey, would we have got people to complete it? Very few, um, just the way that it is. And also, would we have would we have gotten these questions which we never thought of, like people coming up with um, saying, you know, after 20 minutes, we really needed somebody to tell us what was going on. And then once we came back in, like those things we wouldn't have captured. It would have been more of Likert scales or yes, no, or whatever. Um, so that can look totally different. So let's say that was done in a survey. It'd be like, you know, did you know where the exits were, which is going to be a yes or a no. Um, did you feel that, that you were safe? Um, and you know, so that could be another question in that, uh, was this similar, how similar was this to other drills that you had participated in? Although this was authentic, um, like, you know, rate it one to five wasn't similar at all, was very similar. things. So it's like, what does that tell you? Like, <laughs> and you know, what, what could we have done differently and stuff like that? It's like, no, bring people in, value their time. And this works. This absolutely works. Do these focus groups. And um, they're, they're not hard to facilitate at all. They are not hard to facilitate. I think that the mistakes that happen, though, in these groups, um, one is they get to be too long. You have to at forty minutes, you cut it off. Like that's it. That's where people will will kind of stay with you for about that forty minutes. The other one is you get either too few or too many people. So if you bring in like four people, um, not going to be as comfortable talking. If you bring in a group of like fifteen people that group will immediately start to figure out who will be like the representatives for the group, who will do the speaking for the group. So you're going to have that surface. So that's where you want to stay in that six to eight, because then you can individually go back to people and ask questions. Um, and, and nobody is feeling to that. They're, they're being, um, their, their voice is being overtaken by someone else, um, in this group. So again, thank you so much for, following the safety doc podcast. I appreciate it. And 
shout outs to um, the405media.com out of Los Angeles for airing the show. Check back. Uh, I am going to be lining up some guests and also um, looking. Um, to- this has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.